On the topic of education, Peter Smagorensky has likely written more words than I have read. Though long, this conversation is not linear, and listening out of order might be the ideal way to go. Some topics include Peter's unique description of higher and lower mental functions, Vygotsky's great overlooked work, and the topic of deficit thinking, the concept of zone of next development, Martin Luther King and protest movements, artificial intelligence, disastrous utopianism, and equalitarian blind spots, and much more. Please enjoy. Okay, so here we are. Nice Let's to see roll. you, Peter. Good to see you. Good to see you. It's been a couple of years. Yep. And uh, but we're still talking great. about the same stuff. <laughs> still trying to, still trying to get somewhere. Um, so, well, I am. I don't know about you. Yeah, I feel like I've gone backwards, uh, a little forward, and constantly back and forth. Uh huh. I tell you what. Let me. I'm going to try one thing on, on the lighting front. That might be better illumination. That way, everybody can see my my the outfit that I selected for this uh, occasion. <laughs> Likewise. Okay. Okay. All right. Ready? Yep. Okay. Uh, nice to see you, Peter. And uh, thanks so much for joining me again. Really uh -huh. looking forward to this. I had, um, I had a certain broad goal in mind. And pardon me if I read a little bit during the beginning sure, of our session. I was hoping that we could try to keep uh, a couple different types of bridge building in mind as we move today. Yeah. Uh, specifically looking to create win-win or synergy between theory and practice, between the world of academia, and the world of teaching at large, mm -hmm. um, between research and application of, of the research or the implications of the research, between people who are experts uh, and you might claim yourself as one, you might not, I'm not sure yet, and people who are curious. So I'm really, that's really the, like the, the space I'm trying to occupy today. Right. I always deny expertise because yeah. usually people, when they think they're experts, they stop growing. Mm. And if, especially from a Vygotskyan standpoint, you're always under development. And so uh, I, I, I always resist any idea that anybody is an expert because um, they, they tend to get stale and static and stop moving forward. Fair enough. Would you consider yourself more expert than when you started this process? Well, I, I, yeah, I've, I've, because I've, uh, I, well, again, I'm not sure if expert's the thing that I'd yeah. be working toward. I, I'd say I have a, a deeper understanding of what I think I know than I used to. Um, I, I, I hope I don't lose. Mm. I, hope, I hope I don't regress in these matters. Uh, and it, because these things occupy me so much, I'm constantly trying to refine what I think I know. And I've, I've been doing this since about 1990. Yeah. Vygotsky in vain for 31 years now. And, uh, you know, I, I hope I got a little better at it. Yeah. I would like to, if it's okay with you, I'd like to share a little bit of what I think I know at this yeah. point, just just to sort of set uh, the groundwork, and then I'm hoping to fill in 
at least a couple cracks, a couple gaps. So if it's all right with you, I'm going to take about maybe two minutes just to share a little bit of sure. where I think I stand. And uh, forgive me if I read a little bit. Okay. So and I'm, I'm not getting the text on the screen right yeah. now, right? You know, I think I'll put the text up. Let me do okay. that. Perfect. Okay. So at any point, you're going to probably hear like eh, buzzers in your head as I move through some of what I know. And, and hopefully you could just okay. mentally, <laughs> mentally bookmark some of that. That's how I am when I think of when I read the <laughs> writing too. So okay, cool. So pretty much, I'm going to start with that. As I understand it, like the setting that Vygotsky was working in was there was a crisis in psychology, and it was not just in the Soviet Union. It was kind of worldwide, and everyone was trying to solve this impossible puzzle, thought of impossible. Um, after wounds made a breakthrough of separating lower and higher mental functions into these mm -hmm. categories. And as, this is all as far as I understand. Um, and Wundt hit a wall in terms of how to study higher mental functions or highest, higher psychological functions in a, in a scientifically valid way because they're already underground, they're invisible. Um, and higher are the mental functions of humans that are, that are different from what animals might have. And it was hard to apply any sort of rigid or, or even objective scientific method to studying things that are invisible and subjective. And this is where Vygotsky's breakthrough, historical breakthrough, came in. And it was an interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary approach that he used where he was drawing on mental models from, from art, from philosophy, from fields outside of psychology that maybe allowed him to see around corners, maybe allowed him to see what others couldn't. And he was able to so-called so unlock the puzzle, mainly through a two-part solution. Uh, and it was a non-classical, it was new. Uh, both through his theoretical explanation and, the, and the, the method, the research method that paired with it. And both of those uh, sort of influenced the other and developed in response to each other, I believe. Um, so one of the main differences between Vygotsky's, and I'm going to try to hurry up, one of the main differences between his approach and the classical approaches that existed before him was he focused on the whole entire process of development and one thing that allowed him to see the process was because he could actually see it before it was invisible uh, so he focused on the on the buds to the fruits not just the fruits and um, his claim was that the buds are actually social relations not not just they didn't exist within social like social relations are actually like the first step of developing higher mental functions, I think, or at least as far as I understand. His general genetic law um, was not his only law, but it was his most important one, I, what I hear. Uh, and he basically says that the social relations are the source of development, that they reorganize the existing lower mental functions that people have. So they're sort of just reorganized in a new way. It's not that. I'm not exactly sure. Um, uh, one, one interesting, I would say probably the past 10 years, seems to be an argument within the field is from Nikolai Verasov, who I've been talking with as well. And he says that one of the most overlooked parts of the law is, is uh, the idea of category, which is 
related to the concept of drama. And it's not just any social relations that are the engine of higher mental functions. Functions It's particularly dramatical collision types categories. Um, and he said, uh, Zagotsky was pulling from dialectics, particularly Hegel, and borrowing his ideas, which allowed him to focus on the category or the drama, which is ultimately what allowed Vygotsky to unlock the puzzle. I'm not sure. Um, for many reasons, there seems to be a lot of differences of opinion between how to interpret and how to actually work with Vygotsky, both in terms of research and teaching, and uh, teaching, teaching. Um, so on one hand, we have the, the pragmatically sufficient, I'm calling it, which is basically like who people who say who really cares if ZPD, for example, and scaffolding are different concepts, uh, at least something of Vygotsky's is useful to us on the day to day in the real world. And of course, ZPD is the most common, is the most popular concept because that's the one we could actually understand and use. Well, I, and, wrongly, I would say in almost every case. Mm, okay. And then on the other end of the continuum is the uh, purist, I might say, or the conservative or the conservationist who's really trying to, you know, salvage Vygotsky's ideas in its purest sense. And I would say uh, Nikolai is amongst that and his five principles for research, Vygotsky mm -hmm. and research, um, are a good example of that. So, sorry for the long uh, preamble, but that's kind of where I am right now. And I'm hoping that we can correct some of what I know and add to and take it from there. So. Sorry that I'm such a nerd that I wrote down my first question for you, but. Oh, that's okay. And, and you know, there's a lot to unpack in just the little part that you just. Yeah. Uh, for instance, I don't think that there's actually, um, if, if I were to describe what he calls lower mm. and higher mental functions, um, I would say that lower refer, this, uh, this is not necessarily about animals, but it's the biological dimension of, of uh, concepts. Um, in other words, the, a three-year-old can't conceptualize the world the way a 20-year-old can. Oh, okay. To, to use an extreme example. Um, however, there are biological things at work. Um, and and those, are, those are the ones that are common to everyone, um, with the perhaps exception of people who have... Uh, whose bodies deviate greatly from the, the evolutionary norm. Okay, they may, they may not have a, the full set of faculties that uh, a, a typically developing person will have. Um, but the higher mental functions, I understand to refer to cultural ways of thinking. So it, even though I might be born uh, and my, my uh, uh, identical twin and I might have been separated at birth and had that person grow up in uh, some other country, some other part of the world, mm. we would learn to be different kinds of people through our engagement with our surroundings. And those are what I understand Vygotsky to refer to as higher mental functions. So they're not universal. One of the, one of the traits of higher mental functions is that they're not universal, whereas biology is more universal. And so it refers to socialization factors that 
produce different frames of mind for people raised in different kinds of societies. So then if you look at uh, twin studies, for instance, and you find surprising results where people raised on different sides of the world end up having all these similarities, those similarities would likely be according to the lower mental function. Yeah, they would be biological. And, but it's unlikely that they would be identical in how they see the world, how they, mm. how they think and what they think about because their surroundings have produced different things to think about and different ways of approaching them. So if sure. you go back to um, Peter Tulvista's work, this is a long time ago now, from about 1990, maybe 89, um, he, he talked about how ways of thinking emerge through solving the problems presented to you by your environment, which I think has held up really well. And, you know, people who, uh, the, the bush people of various places in Africa who, who hunt and gather, learn to think, they're, they're presented with very different challenges about their environments than I am sitting here in yeah. the office. And the way we think is a function of our efforts to engage with our worlds uh, in, in ways that keep us alive and, uh, and produce some level of security and happiness. Yes. So that, that's what I, I think higher mental functions uh, make it sound as though it's the super smart stuff you do. Mm -hmm. so if you think of the old uh, critical thinking scales, some people associate higher mental functions with the stuff at the top of the chart. And I don't think that that's, I think you're missing the point of Vygotsky if you leave culture out of it. <clears throat> I've, I've heard some people use the phrase uh, cultural, and I might be wrong here, cultural concepts or cultural development as a sort of synonym for the development of higher mental functions. Well, that's what I would do. I'm not claiming that I, I own that term, but um, I, I I probably got it from Mike Cole or, or someone in Mike's uh, orbit, but that's what I would say. Uh, but at the same time, I hope I'm not misrepresenting Mike, but mm. um, he's, you know, the funny thing is my, I can't read Vygotsky because I don't read Russian. Mm -hmm. uh, we're always relying on, and, and a lot of what's published as Vygotsky is actually his students' lecture notes. You know, so you're never really sure what you're getting especially once it gets translated. If you look at the three different translations of thinking and speech, they're really different from each other. Mm. So in addition to being reliant on the work of translators, I rely heavily on people like Mike and Jim Thwerch, yeah. um, who read it in Russian and have helped to explain it in, to the English speaking world. So it's, a, you know, there's a lot between me and the original, um, uh, you know, and then of course there's my own take on it based on how I've tried to use these ideas uh, to engage with data of my own. Sure. Studying things that Vygotsky never studied, like how do teachers develop conceptions of good teaching, that sort of thing. Yeah, whereas he was probably a little more focused on Scientifically biological concepts. You've been Vygotsky? a lot more. You've been no, more focused on social concepts. No, no. The Vygotsky was. That's what Vygotsky did. Now, but if there's a big difference, he studied children 
mm. mostly uh, adolescents. Some there, I, there's a book that I started reading, one of the collected works, where the whole thing is about adolescence, uh, which I had overlooked because most of what I'd read had dealt with him yes. clinical research and with children. But he's got a, he's actually got quite a bit about adolescence. Um, but then with Luria, he also did the study of adults in Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan. So, you know, he did, uh, it, I don't know if the yeah. studies you could call related in terms of the data sets, but they were related in terms of the notions of human development that, um, that were so fundamental to how he produced the psychology. Yeah, that's interesting you know, to hear. The I think the last time we talked, um, I think you may have learned this since the last time we talked, because you said then he was focused a bit more on developing, like, say, the concept of like a mammal, like a fish versus a whale. Okay, and that's so, what, as opposed uh, to developing concepts that you tend to study, which are much murkier. Yeah, so, and there are people who say, well, he did, you know, they'll give an example of one thing he mentioned that's not biological, but if you read, it's all. A lot of what he does, a lot of how he illustrates concept development is of what I would think of relatively static concepts. Mm. Like a whale and a fish aren't going to change that much uh, in my lifetime. Right. And so, uh, you know, in a billion years, they might evolve differently, but that's a that's another question. So, um, yeah, I, I I am I think that he may have been interested in them. He just didn't use them illustratively uh, and maybe because to make the points accessible a biological example is a is an easy way to lay it out but um, you know that there is scientific agreement on what distinguishes a whale from a fish and that was one of his examples whereas mm -hmm. there's not scientific evidence that says whether teaching this way or teaching that way is better teaching that I agree. I agree with you, and I understand your last sentence, but it does seem a little crazy to people outside the field. So, why is there no scientific evidence? Because there's no agreement on what it is. Why not? Um, like I, I know it's not anything goes. I understand that. You know, some things are better than others. Well, yes. some things are better than others situationally, and I, yeah. I'll give an example. I hate lectures, right? It, someone who stands up there and jibber-jabbers, I'm staring at the ceiling, I'm thinking about other things. I'm <laughs> That's why I apologize at the start of our uh, talk today. Sorry yeah, yeah. I'm, I, I just dream. I, just, I daydream during lectures. I think they're awful. I can't do it as a teacher. Um, and so at the beginning of my career in higher ed, uh, when I was at Oklahoma, I was asked to do some uh, workshops for beginning teaching assistants on, you know, how to teach effectively. And it was based on stuff I'd done on small group work. You know, how do we, how do we, uh, uh, how do we get people to talk more in, during classes as opposed to sitting there? And I ended up with a bunch of TAs from the hard sciences, and they thought, I was the most useless person they'd ever met because they said the most important thing in here is learning the facts of the business. That's my job as a teacher is to make sure that they know uh, the difference between a whale and a fish yeah. or whatever. You know, I can't, it's been a long time, but what I remember was feeling deflated because I was completely rejected 
by people who were doing the very things that I was critiquing and mm -hmm. saying that that's the only best and only way to teach their discipline. So, yeah, I, I think that there are disciplinary issues, although even within disciplines, there are uh, uh, different conceptions. You know, just think of the English teachers who lecture and the, and the English teachers who use conductive sure. approaches. You know, that's, that's how I was trained to teach in the 70s. Mm. It suited my disposition well. And one of the things I've been grappling with in uh, current work is uh, when you teach people how to teach, are you actually teaching them something different or are they, are they kind of waiting for what they're already aligned with to be presented with and then that they latch onto it? Um, it's, it's, I, don't, I still don't know the answer to that question. I guess I've seen it work differently from different people. Some people actually do say, oh, I get it. Kids daydream when you lecture, maybe I need to do something else. And other people are disposed to liking interactive classrooms because that's what they did well in. And when they get that, that's what they that's what they um, that's what they affix themselves to. Yeah. Or or they might be disposed to that for other reasons, maybe even part partially hereditary reasons, you know. Well, and there are also I, I don't want to get too, I don't want to overgeneralize too much, but there are students from certain cultures who come to U.S. classrooms who have been acculturated throughout their schooling to very authoritarian instructional mm. and, and, and human relations. They respect their elders. They always address, uh, you know, the, the grandparents are revered members of their family. Teachers mm. are, people, are people that they hold in awe. And the idea that they that a student would have something to say in that setting is ridiculous, and so they tend to be very quiet and amenable to teachers talking and students listening. So that's a that's a cultural factor that can mm -hmm. shape how um, students orient themselves to proper roles in classroom settings, and they don't all work the same. I'm going to hit pause just real quick. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, one sec. Oh, no, I'm not. All right. Well, let's just roll. Okay. Yeah, I can, I can edit everything later. Okay. So I do have a list of questions. I'm going to yeah, let's periodically let's jump to them. So some people, some people think use, use Vygotsky's work as best you can. Make Make it useful, add it to your existing repertoire. That's kind of how I am. And, uh, you know, if something works, it works. Whether you understand that concept's particular role in the larger theory or not, whether you confuse CPD with scaffolding or not. Some people say, what the hell is the difference? You know, what works is works. And then there's the other side, which I would say is more the purest, very important in my view. Or it's like, no, this is, you know, things have been poorly translated, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I could read in Russian. And I would put Nikolai Beresov there more on the purest end of the spectrum. Right. Um, I see you moving a little bit. Uh, where would you locate yourself there between the two? And well, there's, uh, where would I locate myself? So the, the kind of work that I do now in a university setting um, makes my task um, 
both theoretical and practical, the practical side being the fact that I'm in teacher education. I'm trying to help prepare people for teaching careers, right? So that's a very practical thing to do. At the same time, I think that there's a, you know, there's, there's a theory behind how I teach people to teach. It's constructivist, it's uh, social, um, uh, and, and other things as well. Um, what I think that from the different people in different, from different perspectives would ask that question differently. So you're positioning yourself as a teacher, I think, right? Classroom teacher. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Lately so, I've been, lately I've been seeing myself as a teacher. Absolutely. But maybe somebody who is able to have light conversations, uh -huh. and, you know, deep experts. Yeah. So. But, but if you're a teacher, it doesn't matter whether something comes from Foucault or Bourdieu. What matters is whether the kids are getting learning. Okay. Mm -hmm. But I think that there's a problem when you say I'm doing, I'm, uh, I, I advocate scaffolding, therefore I'm Vygotskyan, because that's wrong. Mm. So if you take the part about, you don't need Vygotsky to scaffold. That's really Bruner. I, I think that if you go around saying, oh, I'm Vygotskyan because I, I sequence my lessons in this particular way, I think it's great that you're sequencing your lessons in particular, mm. in whatever, as long as it's working. But I think that you're wrong if you're saying, if you're attributing it to a particular theorist. And we mm. actually have a book coming out on misused concepts. Uh, some colleagues and I, are, we just got a book contract on how things like third space have gotten all screwed up. Uh, dialogism, people screw up bot team constantly, funds of knowledge. There are all these terms that have gotten, we call it whitewashed. Yeah. Because they start out in one place and then they get picked up broadly and all the, the edges are taken off. Let, let alone the let alone the concepts that start in academia and work their way into the culture. Uh, wow, right. Especially into the culture wars, how 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 just absolutely distorted and redefined and, and abused things like that. Would get well, and that's for political ends. I sure. what my view is that people say they want to they want to legitimize what they're doing, and so they associate what they're doing with a famous person. Sometimes the wrong famous person. Again, scaffolding, that's straight out of Bruner. I mean, there's, and if you read Bruner's original conception of scaffolding, it doesn't look like anything that people are calling scaffolding now. It was so much more heavily uh, managed by the teacher, very heavily managed by the teacher. The induction was barely there. Um, it's gotten expanded. And I think that that, I think it's good that the notion of scaffolding has broadened to include more approaches yeah, and this and this is a and this is somebody who lived a nice, long, healthy, you know, life. Not somebody who died young, like Vygotsky, who, who really couldn't corral his. About one hundred and seventy years old by now. Yeah. I mean, yeah. he's still writing. Yeah. But, um, yeah. At, at what what's wrong with saying it comes from Bruner? That's a, he's a perfectly legitimate and respected source. But, but I think that he got it wrong in claiming to be Vygotskyan because he was reading a crappy uh, translation. Yeah, okay. So what is, what is, uh, what's the difference between scaffolding, ZPD, and ZND, which was your coinage, which I'm not sure if that's catching on or not. 
uh, I, uh, I can guarantee you it hasn't. Okay. Uh, well, because the other thing is too, in too many ed psych textbooks already, in which they call it, in which they say Vygotsky invented scaffolding. I mean, this I has see. gotten so ridiculous. If I was, if I were to cut a 90 second clip from this video to put out there, which to introduce the Z, the zone of next development concept, how would you describe it? Well, in my view, um, if, if you say you're working in Vygotsky's tradition or drawing on Vygotsky, you can't do that without being concerned with long-term human development. That's what he was about. Long-term socially and culturally mediated human development. And that's what leads to higher mental processes, right? That's what leads me to be different from someone who grows up in rural India, right? It just, we are acculturated, we are socialized very differently toward these higher mental processes. And that's the kind of human development that he was concerned with. The, the zone of proximal development, as it's been uh, produced by Bruner, um, excuse me, as it's been picked up by Bruner and others, was adapted to school learning. Mm -hmm. And school teachers are not necessarily concerned. They, they say, well, I'm here, I'm here to influence the, for the lifespan. But what they're really doing is trying to get them to pass tomorrow's test or something like that. It, the, the, the pragmatic needs of teachers are, tend to be short term. Um, how can I teach people how to do this thing that we do in our discipline that's in the curriculum for at the sophomore year? How can we get them to distinguish between a metaphor and a simile? How can we get them to, um, I don't know, write a narrative or write a, a research report, right? These, are, these aren't really about the long-term human development. These are about the kinds of things you do in school which have grading periods and everything is demarcated and short-term. Like even if you do a unit of instruction of eight weeks, there are a lot of little smaller things that you do in the, as part of that um, that are instructionally designed to help to provide short-term understandings that often have to meet some external demand for testing, right? So teachers' concerns are rarely with how this person's going to turn out when they're 50 years old, even though they have a kind of abstract sense that that's what they're there for. That's not what they actually do. And I say this as a former teacher, right? I'm not, I'm not saying that I'm not being at all critical of teachers when I say this. I'm saying that that's the task. That's what yes. setting sets you up to think about. Um, whereas if you're doing what Vygotsky was doing and trying to develop a comprehensive psychology of human development, you're, you're, you're thinking long term. And so the zone of next development, uh, you know, that's not my term, by the way. I got it from this, uh, this BBC broadcast on the Butterflies of Zagorsk, uh, which is a wonderful film if you can get a copy of it. I do, yeah. It was about how to create tools through which deaf and I think non, I can't remember if they're blind or non-speaking, but uh, they may have been deaf and blind how they can develop means through which to communicate verbally as a way to become 
part of broader social processes and trajectories so that they be, can belong in society. That's a long-term thing. And it's concerned with next stages of development in a, in a grand sense, which is very different from the, the short-term thinking that you do in school. And I just don't think that schools provide the, the I don't know if the incentive is the right word, but schools don't position learning as being like that. It's mastering subject matter, passing next week's test, and teachers are agents of the school system. You know, if you think systemically about things, and that's another thing that Vygotsky did, was he thought systemically about how institutions create path, developmental pathways that produce particular kinds of people. I remember writing a certain paper in college, and it was intense, it was crazy, it was last minute, uh, and, and I just felt every single element of my skill set sort of synthesizing at once. Mm -hmm. And it was all these different tasks and mundane skills that I had developed at some point randomly uh, were able to fire all at once and allow me to complete this task that, quite honestly, that task allowed me to be more a part of the social group that I was currently in, in grad school. Well, I'm so, glad that worked for you. I can tell you the very first paper I wrote is in my doctoral <laughs> program. I had come out of a national writing project uh, experience. Everything was very personal. Mm -hmm. uh, developing a distinctive voice was very big part of that. Uh, I had just read a very, I can't remember what it was. I'd read a kind of jaunty history of education and I really liked the author's style and mm -hmm. have a stylistic approach, mm -hmm. it was very big. I got that first paper back and um, uh, the professor said, he was kind of like, uh, he's, and what he said was, you don't write like a scholar. Mm. So I, and I've had to do these genre shifts at various points in my life where I, what worked for me as a writer didn't work mm -hmm. because of where I was doing the writing. And you, uh, this was at University of Chicago. They had very particular ways of thinking what scholarship looks like and right. for. And part of my task as a graduate student was to learn to rewrite so that I fit and kind of crush my, not, or, or to mute my distinctive voice, which was something I was then able to build back in over time, just not in, sure. in, a, in a less uh, kind of flamboyant way probably. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but then when I started writing for the public about, I've written about 110 essays in newspapers. You, that's a thousand words, mm -hmm. 600. And going from writing, you know, 300 page books and 50 page journal articles to writing short, pithy, accessible, readable essays, I had to really, I had to find a different voice for that. And a lot of active, yeah, people say, wow, I, you know, that's neat, you can write these essays. And I say, well, anybody can write them. They say, no, that's actually mm -hmm. not true. Um, be, because academics take 20 pages to clear their throats, yeah. right? And it, they, they can't get to the point and they can't write without jargon. And I think in part, they feel non-scholarly 
writing in these non-scholarly ways and it it they feel that people won't take them seriously anymore there are, so there are a lot of things that feed into that sure all having to do with socialization mm. um and it's kind of funny because um if you think of traditional conceptions of syntactic maturity and i don't know if you ever read these t-unit studies from the 60s or whatever they were but the idea was that mature writers write longer sentences with more embedded clauses and phrases right that 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 became a value that's why that was okay. the impetus behind something called sentence combining where you mm -hmm. learned how to make your sentences longer uh, and still keep them grammatical if you start writing for the public what you have to learn how to do is shorten your sentences and shorten your paragraphs yes. and cut out all the big words and say things clearly and not try to sound smarter than your readers. That's what is persuasive in that medium. Sure. Yeah. It's, and it's, it's all, I had to re, kind of relearn how to communicate in order to do that. And it turns out I, I know how to do it now. But it, it was a shift for me. That, and, and, and also at the same time, I had to go and keep writing the scholarly stuff. But I think that my mm. scholarly writing got better because I started writing shorter sentences. With, yes. With and you expanded, right. And you expanded your audience. Sure. And probably, well, uh, there are now three or four of them out there right. in my audience. <laughs> know the feeling. The, the, the reason I brought up that moment where I was synthesizing many skills in one paper or the the writing of one paper is the all those skills that I learned over time were not I don't think they were overtly developmentally focused uh -huh. by the teachers who taught me those things but yet it still had a developmental impact um, mm -hmm. but I guess where I'm going is for teachers who are working within whatever system they're working in if they wanted to simultaneously balance the task at hand and the concept of the development of cultural concepts or the right. development of higher mental functions. Um, what can you offer the person who wants to consciously do both? That's me. Um, well, so this, let me, let me, uh, I, I'm not sure where to start. Um, <laughs> first of all, you have to want to do it. You know, it's, it, I, most English teachers I know would much rather read a novel than read the gospel. Most human beings would rather read a novel, you know, so you have, you have a million different things to read. Gardening magazines, sure. uh, novels, Vygotsky. Vygotsky's a load. I mean, he mm -hmm. is not, he, it's a struggle to read. It, I, I started this thing last summer I'm on about page 50. <laughs> Interruptions have a lot to do with that, but it's also yeah. just slow going. So you have to have a willingness to read things that take a lot of time and don't necessarily have a big practical payoff. And I don't know, I think most teachers are too compressed in their time demands to, to, to have the luxury of reading theory. Mm. Uh, I, I know someone who once described the Heinemann Press, which is uh, uh, explicitly for teachers, as 
Yep, that's writing for tired teachers. Mm -hmm. When I write something for Hyman or the English Journal, I write for tired teachers. And that, you know, I've written things for English Journal, and they say 17 pages, that's too long. What can you cut out? Because that's, you know, they're tired teachers. They're reading during a break when they're not grading papers, or they're, mm -hmm. uh, you know, maybe at home. Um, or maybe they're just tired when they get home and they want to watch a TV show, you know, or they coach and they don't have time for these things. And I, I speak from experience. I was a coach. Mm -hmm. um, I was a teacher. Uh, I read the English Journal and not researching the teaching of English for most of my teaching career. Um, that began to shift because I did my PhD while a, while a teacher. So I, you know, I had this dual life anyhow. But that was actually beneficial to me, I think, because I was constantly straddling theory and practice. But it also made theory more relevant to me when I could find applications for it. So that was, you know, you, if you can't road test a theory, it's just a theory. Yeah. You've got to be able to road test. And that's, that's built into Vygotsky's conception that um, abstraction is important and, and what he called spontaneous concepts, the ones you develop through practice, both are important and neither does well without the other. So a robust concept always has both uh, a theoretical and a practical dimension or else it's hollow. It's either hollow or difficult to make sense of in new contexts. So does this translate, does this translate somewhat to like try it out even if you don't understand it? Uh, well, that's trial and error. And I think that conceptually driven instruction has an anticipated sense of outcome. Okay. Um, so well, just, just because, you know, I, I, I've been looking at Vygotsky's work for a long time. I took a, a lot of years off, but I've come back around to looking into it and I don't understand it so much, but I still want to try things out. So well, is, it, is it almost like uh, understand it and then develop a system as a teacher or sort of like bounce back and forth between the two? Well, yeah, like, again, if you, you have to have it in conjunction with practical activity, mm -hmm. but they're also, um, so I, one of the, his great overlooked work in my view is the volume uh, that, that was assembled from various writings on what was called defectology. Defectology is a terrible word for a great idea. And it was actually originated in Germany, Vygotsky, uh, some of the Soviet, some of the Russians, this is pre-Soviet, picked it up and it, it loosely translate to, translates to Soviet and then Russian special education. Mm. Um, and this term, def you know, the idea, well, if someone can't hear, that's a defect, right? And so it was concerned with that sort of thing. So you, ha you have to, when you have to kind of put a clothespin over your nose when you use the term defectology because the construct it, itself it is though, it, powerful. It, it is. It is a deficit. I, amongst it's also a, it's also you know a place for advantages as well. But well, it's a, it's it's a, it's a, um, I've I've tried I've really struggled with the phrasing and I've used terms like people who depart from the evolutionary norm. Um, and which doesn't have deficit language. No, no, but it sounds like, I, and I completely understand and agree, but it does sound like a George Carlin skit. He talks about 
soft language versus, you know, how language evolves over time, moving further and further away from the, the simple term. Um, well, yeah, but the, the simple terms don't always work. Got it. Yeah. Agree. When, the, when there's baggage built in, whether it's colonial mm. baggage or psychological baggage or something, you can't ignore that. So, um, yeah, anyway. I, 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 pref I personally prefer not to err too far in one direction or the other. But yeah, agreed. So the, the defectology approach to people who were different and, and the butterflies of Zagorsk that I, that I used, that I borrowed the term zone of next development from. Mm. Um, the, the, no, the, the, the fundamental premise of the defectological movement in the Soviet Union was that being different isn't bad. But what is bad is how people treat you for being different. That's, that's, I just reduced this incredibly complex uh, piece of work to a fairly simple idea, but it's, it's also, it, it, to Vygotsky, self-esteem really mattered. And this is not getting trophies for finishing in last place in Little League self-esteem, which I think is tremendously damaging. Um, this is just feeling that you're part of something. Now it's very big in the, in the early Soviet Union, the whole idea of feeling that you belong in a stream of social activity was critical to your ability to develop the higher mental functions. The, mm. and, and, and in Vygotsky's, at the beginning of his career, when the Soviet Union was under formation, becoming part of the Soviet project. Um, what they, and here I'll use their language, developing the new Soviet man mm. was the whole purpose of the society. Um, unfortunately, Stalin had to murder millions of people in order to get rid of the non-Soviet men. Mm. Uh, it, it was a problematic enterprise, but the ideal at the beginning- They tend to be, yeah. That we become part of this equitable society. Um, <laughs> And we participated now under under Stalin. So that so Vygotsky talked. He was he was rhapsodizing about how even blind and deaf children become could become young pioneers, and then even ascend into the young communists. And these were the kind of uh, legions of young people who were being socialized into this conception of a new person. Um, it was it was very problematic. Uh, um, because he he didn't realize that these what what Stalin was doing was taking these young pioneers and young communists, having them rat out their parents when they went against the ideology. So it you know they, all these things get distorted when power uh, power and politics come into play. Mm. Yeah, and I I know you have some family ties, and, and I have through marriage some family ties to to that sort of situation and. Well, my yeah. my grandparents escaped Romanovs, mm -hmm. yeah. you know. So uh, they they came over in 1913 and 1916, just before the revolution. Yeah, my in-laws are Cuban, and it was no better. Yeah, you know, it was no party there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, they were. Well, did they get out during Batista or after Castro? After Castro. Yeah. See, mine got out before mm -hmm. the Soviets, so they were they're actually getting. 
escaping the Christians. Yeah. Uh, who who were you know, organizing these pogroms, which were these violent mobs? Uh, yeah, and all these all these backdrops just always add a little bit of interesting color to my interaction with this material. Yeah, always, I'm always because I don't have I'm I'm no historian. I'm not very smart when it comes to that stuff, but but uh, yeah, I have my personal biases. And, right, right. Yeah, and uh, it's interesting trying to sort through Gatsky ideas with this with this backdrop. Mm -hmm. And Vygotsky, well, of course, when it, especially when they uh, became communists, the, the, the Russian psychologies were very, or the Soviet psychologies were imported. And so there, there were actually apparently a strong group of Cuban Vygotskians, mm. um, although I, I have no idea what the situation is now. And the things were shut down there so long it was hard to even know who they were. I'm going to ask you two questions, and I'll yeah. give you your choice. Uh, so question one is, was Vygotsky more interested in how higher mental functions develop or more interested in how we might help people develop them? That's question one. Or you could just pick that one now. Well, question I, I'm not sure I would say, I, I don't know, I didn't know him, so I can't hmm. say. Uh, I would say that he was interested in both. And he was interested in mediation. And so that is the how, but it's also what produces the what. I, I just, the, one of the things that he was very insistent on is that this sort of uh, categorical separation works against understanding. Hmm. So uh, he was very big on integration. Um, hmm. Like I, for the life of me, I can't understand most of what people are talking about when they talk about bodies. Well, they, there are all these brown bodies on a bus and I think, those are people, you know, there's a, there's a psychology there. There's a, there's socialization, there's a community, you know, they represent community. This idea that these are like empty bodies bothers the hell out of me. Yeah. It's, it's psychotic in my, in my view. Well, there's, and there are smart people who do it. I'm I know. Like, I, sometimes you have to be, I don't get it. It's maybe you and I are off, but uh, sometimes you have to be really smart to say, to say certain things. Right. So that just seems like the totally was integrating yeah. all these things together. So his interest in defectology wasn't about the blind, you know, the blindness. It was about the social context in which blindness is constructed in deficit ways and how that can be altered through changes in how people act around blind people. Okay, so it's like almost like uh, the this this is there's more of a societal disability than an individual disability. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. The society is incapable of seeing the wholeness of people who are different in some way. Mm. Say say another say a little more about that, please. Oh, well, I mean, the whole idea of a deficit conception, mm. just that you're not seeing the whole thing. You're, you're, you're seeing what you see and, um, uh, and, and interpreting it as an absence and, and a deficit. I'm, I'm actually reading a history of the Mexican, uh, the conquest of the Aztecs that was written in the mid 1800s by an American, uh, US, I should say, US based uh, historian and the judgments of the Aztec rituals was very Eurocentric, right? It's deficit built into mm. how they see. And, and 
you know, human sacrifice. I, I don't approve of that. But he would then link it to failures, you know, the absence of philosophy in the society and things like that. He would, he would, uh, he would characterize it as less advanced than whatever the Christian world uh, to, even though Christians were killing people constantly too. Sure. Yeah. Just not through sacrificial rituals, or at least not the ones. I mean, you know, the Aztecs were wiped out. Sure. Spanish. Does, does that does that create an impulse in you when you see that sort of negative characterization? Does that create an impulse in you to throw away the writer's entire critique? No, because what I'm trying to do is get the history and yeah. having the, the the awareness that they're also that there's a perspective through which it's presented. So I. I think it's useful to know how these rituals were conducted, and the author does. Uh, his name is Prescott, William Prescott. He's apparently one of the early U.S. historians of note. Um, you have to be able to see where he's being ideological and where yeah. he's describing things that did happen. Sure, and and where there's actual value in what he's saying, and where there's just hideous. Uh, especially by modern standards. You know. Yeah, by modern standards. And you just have to accept him as a, a, a white Eurocentric male from the mid-1800s and how that shaped his perspective. You know, that's human for better and Yeah, for better and worse, I would say. And so that, there's another trend, you know, that I'm not quite thrilled with, the idea of just throwing, throwing people's entire uh, perspective or entire catalog or entire set of contributions away because they on bad things or you know especially by today's standards well yeah and that it seems to maybe that's just me but that seems no to no it's not trend. just you i think it's and, and not only a trend but a trend in, in my field a trend in trend in our field i would say even at the national level um, well and you know you go back um you know you can say well wagner was a nazi i'm not listening to his music anymore i think that that's a legitimate decision mm -hmm. to arrive at um, and I can also see why people said, I don't care what his politics were like, this is important music. I can see, uh, I can see legitimate ways of, of, of taking either stand. Uh, it, it can get, you know, the, then there's, do we tear down the Robert E. Lee monuments? That's, that's a huge question that the United States is facing today. Um, or, or for that matter, Thomas Jefferson, I think, Robert E. Lee, you could you, you can make a better case for that than you can say, oh, we have to rename everything named Jefferson. But that that's the kind. I mean, that, those are those are current issues, and they're gonna they're gonna be around my life the whole all of my lifetime. And I'm not saying I have the best answer for all of them. I don't know how you rename everything named Jefferson, but uh, there are people who would. I, uh, my preference would be the person who wants to enjoy the music and the person who wants to not listen to the music. Um, need to have room for both of these people and respect both of these people. And my view is if you don't want to listen to it, don't listen to it. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you know, now when things are out in public spaces, it becomes more complex. One of the most interesting little uh, segments of, of this book was the way you wrote about the Confederate flag. I thought that was really really cool because I, what you did was you, you brought about five or six different potential readings 
for that text, right. flag as text. And uh, that was really cool. Would, would, oh, you mind, right. would you mind recapping that a bit? Well, I wrote it a while ago. I <laughs> um, I, uh, the example I think I used concerned, the, um, I think it was in South Carolina. Mm, yeah. There was a, they'd flown the Confederate flag above the state house for, since whenever they started flying it. Uh, you know, and a lot of those things were... And, and this book has Vygotsky in the title, so it is relevant to the conversation. That's right. Yeah. Um, but, you know, a lot of the, uh, you know, like the introduction of God into the allegiance, um, <clears throat> a lot of these things were done at the point of integration um, to, to, to create a history that didn't exist. And the daughters of a American of the American Confederacy or whatever they're called, uh, they were huge in building monuments to Nathan Bedford Forrest and in making the kind of reviving a Confederate flag that wasn't necessarily the flag used by all Southern troops. Mm. The Confederate flag is a uh, is among the flags that were used by Southern troops. So um, there, there there was a I originally wrote that around the turn of the century. And that's when a lot of these state house questions, should we take the flag down? Should we put it behind glass? Should we fly it 200 feet from the state house? Um, who do we piss off by doing any of these things? Who do we insult by leaving them up? Um, and what I, what I did was simply take different stakeholders in the Confederate flag dispute in South Carolina, and it usually boils down to heritage or hate, um, and position different people in relation to their historical feelings and ideologies that led them to construct the flag in different ways. Um, and I, tell me if I'm telling the right story from your point of view and what you want me to do with it. Yeah, no, I just think that was interesting. How about the, how about simply uh, the task of having to go into five or six different people's heads and construct, read it, you know, read the text. I, I thought that alone was just useful, which is okay. kind of what you were modeling there. You were reading the text. You were even reading reading the text from uh, somebody in a boat coming into shore and looking yeah. at the flag in terms of which direction it's flying. Mm -hmm. yeah? Totally divorced from, from any political... From, right, right, and what would the Martian think seeing this? Yeah, right, 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 or what would the, the new citizen think who has no idea, like, what... Doesn't know the history. Right, and, or there's astrological signs, perhaps, in there. Right. I, I don't know. I don't know exactly what my question is. It was just cool, because you were able to take something that was about as hot button as it gets, and what would you say? Is there, like, some sort of method, or is it just simply, like, let's, let's read this from five or six different angles, and that would be the method? Uh, I would say that I, if, if, if there's a method, I don't think I could name it. I'm sure there, someone else could say, ah, he's being hermeneutical or something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Not that I know what that is, or phenomenological, or things like that. But Yeah. I, I, uh, I, I, go ahead, I'm sorry. It's probably just a uh, probably just goes back to the whole, I was taught to teach English by George Hillocks in these inductive ways that you, that you never, that you always are questioning your assumptions. Mm. And that's a kind of a, that was an assumption questioning exercise, not necessarily my own, but who, 
behind this way of seeing the flag, what are the assumptions that are at work? Okay. And how are they developed and how are they cultural and how are they developmental? Because they, they do suggest trajectories taking this position or that. It's almost the only even remotely productive conversations I've been, I've been able to hold with people regarding President Trump has been to use this method, for instance. <laughs> like, uh, there's almost no way to do it except for get inside five or six different people's heads and try to ventriloquate or try to, you know, try to, authentic, you know, try to uh, steel man them. You know, what would they say in a way they would agree with? And some, it's, it's like a virtually impossible task. Like, no one's able to do it. It's fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, my next question is, and this might be a little redundant, can you compare and contrast a learning objective for either a class lesson or a class unit with the concept of developing higher mental functions? So I, I, I have a, the gist of the question, but not the what you want me to do. Okay. Um, is I guess teaching short term and te uh, is my can you can you we change the question then okay can you think of any effective Vygotskyan teaching lessons teaching strategies that that uh, that are either loosely or purely Vygotskyan that you could share um I, I just don't think of them in that way Okay, okay, that's, that's so, helpful. Um, you could, I, I've written a couple of articles about what does Vygotsky mean to the elementary school teacher or something like that. I, I wrote something like that for, one for the English Journal and one for um, language arts. So one for younger kids and teachers of younger kids and one for secondary kids. And what I try to do is shift shift the attention to what kind of context am I creating in my classroom through which learning might occur. And um, I, I give examples like, uh, and again, everything comes back to socialization. People are socialized to behave differently in public settings, depending on where they come from. And so, I, I, and, and I think that this is just a nice, clear example. If you go to a, a more or less typical white church, Christian church, the role of the congregant largely is to be quiet, right? To sit, stand when told to stand, kneel when told to kneel, read the psalm when told to read the psalm, all in unison. And there's specific turn-taking uh, rules that you abide by in church, in those churches, in order to be a, a considered a member of the congregation. Okay, does that, would you agree with that? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Those rules happen to map very well onto the sorts of turn-taking and procedural rules that take place in classrooms. Mm. There's someone in charge with an authoritative text, maybe even with access to a, the deity of intellectualism, Mm. And the role of the student slash congregant is to speak when spoken to, say the right things, 
sit and kneel at the appropriate times, you know, to follow these rules that are that are designed to promote conformity and kind of faith to the principles of instruction or, or the, the content of instruction. So even if the teacher says something wrong, if it's on the test, it's going to be right for a while. And that's an interesting problem of history textbooks is that they, they're often flat out wrong, but you, you get, you have to do what you're tested to be correct on. So, so I'm going to shift back to the church model. Many black churches are noisy. And I used to listen to a lot, of, and I'm not a, I'm not a Christian, by the way, but I, I like um, black church music, and I've listened to a lot of black church services. And when I lived in Chicago, I, when I would drive around on Saturdays, they'd play, play the previous Sunday's services, mm. black churches on the radio, and I would, I, I like the music, but I also liked the way the whole thing was just this one seemingly spontaneous. Uh, um, experience uh, you there the distinction between singing and preaching weren't clear they they meld into each other and the, the congregation was supposed to be yelling and interrupting and shouting and, and testifying and if the congregation is quiet the the minister says y'all can't hear me you know it gets kind of uh, uh tries to incite the, the congregation to participate more. Okay, so that's a public setting. Bring that behavior into church and you get sent to, into school and you get sent to the office. Having a side conversation, talking out of turn, shouting stuff out, shouting, you know, not raising your hand, but being spontaneous and, and jumping in. High energy, yeah. Uh, and so the, I think that that's a good example of why black kids get sent to get disciplined so much mm. for doing things that they've been socialized to believe are appropriate means of conduct in a public setting, mm. in a formal public setting. And so one of the, when I talked about, when I, when I wrote for a teaching audience about what Vygotsky has to offer you, it's not scaffolding. It's how do I think about this classroom as a place in which that has to host people of different means of socialization? How do I conduct a class that has some sense of order? You can't have chaotic or anarchic, you know, uh, anarchy in your classroom, but it also can't be stifling. It can't be culturally stifling, which is how a lot of kids feel in school. And I'm sure many types of white kids too, but this is just such a good, I think, example uh, in terms of how these services are conducted and how that plays out once those kids enter other formal settings. Um, there's a there's a really neat study, and it's very old now; it's like 40 years old, uh, by a guy named Tim Kochman, and he was studying how white and black people interact in community meetings in Chicago. And the, the white people did what you'd expect of white people. They were reserved. They were, they were um, uh, in, in their presentation of their beliefs about, I don't know whether it's to build a basketball court or something. I don't know what they, I forget what the meetings were about, mm -hmm. but how do, how do we take this space and do something with it for the public? Um, do we have uh, 
farmer's market here or something like that. So whatever they're trying to figure out in their neighborhood. And the, the black participants were louder and more emotional in, in, in presenting their perspective. When all was said and done, the white people were asked what they thought of the black people and they'd say they were illogical and irrational and too emotional. The black people would say they didn't, they had no passion for what they were talking about. Mm. And so they were both critiquing others, one another according to their own cultural norms. And in school, however, the norms that get established are those of white, you know, it's kind of overused term, but, you know, white middle class norms of, of turn taking and things like that. There's another neat book, uh, Yolanda Major's book on um, African-American hair salons and how women in hair salons argue. And it's, it's not Stephen Toulman. It's not, you know, I'm not, they don't say, sit there and make a claim, give an example, provide a warrant, uh, uh, give a counterexample, rebut the counter, you know, they, there's a set of things that Toulman said go into argument. And often in these hair salons, the points are made by telling stories, right? It's a narrative approach to, uh, and, and it's very passionate, yelling, not yelling, but raising your voice is part of what you do in this. It's a, it's a form of passion. And again, you bring that into school and you're, you're told that you argue poorly. You go into the hair salon and that's how you do it. And, you know, just if, if you're asking what, I think teachers can benefit from its understanding that there are differential means of socialization that are being brought into your classroom. Every, you know, we talk about uh, celebrating diversity, but it's usually stifled by other rules. There's a, there are fundamental contradictions about promoting diversity and having a standardized curriculum, for instance. And I think it both affects how students behave and whether or not people from these non-dominant cultures want to become teachers and change the institution from within. That's why 85% of teachers have been white forever, right, since integration. So you, you have this self, you have all these self-perpetuating cycles. School is this way, teachers become teachers in part because they felt comfortable with school. If you didn't feel comfortable with school, it's a less likely profession for you. And so the kinds of people who go into teaching tend to reify the structures that, that they experienced, which are exclusionary. Mm. So this is what I think Vygotsky really has to offer teachers, not scaffolding. It's a much richer, more, his, you know, it's called a cultural historical psychology. And if you don't have culture and if you don't have history in it, hmm. it ain't Vygotsky. Very interesting. Yeah. And I think schools should also have enough diversity to, to uh, represent all the stories you just told mm -hmm. and also the stories of people who interpret things differently. For instance, uh, this person should have a voice if there's true diversity. Um, the, whatever the norms are, whatever the history of the norms are, so be it. 
adapt. Like that person should be able to have a voice if there's going to be a diversity of conversation. And what I what I've tended to notice if the curriculum is standard, mm -hmm. and if the people who go into teaching perpetuate historical ways of teaching, and again, this is a cultural historical question. Mm. The institution has a cultural historic historical set of traditions that get get um, reproduced over generations. And I think a big part of the reason is the people who go back to work in schools are the people who feel comfortable within those structures who tend to be white. And so you're never going to have real respect for diversity as long as the as the core and the dominant demographic who make decisions is always the same. Interesting. Is, uh, is there a way that you can summarize the subtitle? Uh, I, have to, yeah, I know you can't. I'm going to read it to oh, you. A methodological framework. Yeah, because I, I've been I've been talking with uh, Nikolai Verasov a bit about the framework that he recommends for Vygotskyan yeah. research, uh -huh. and as as you know, it's 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 a uh, it has five dimensions, not all of which need to be present at all moments, but each each principle each of the five principles is aligned with a with a element of the theory. Um, what methodology? What methodology? Were you talking about in this book, or are you, or are you adopting nowadays? Well, I'm, I, I'm, I'm not as familiar with his work as you mm -hmm. are. Uh, I, I am, I always back off from here are the five things you have to do, mm -hmm. uh, sort of uh, formulaic ways of thinking about things. Um, I think that things are a little too, little too fluid for a, a simple breakdown. I don't like the activity triangle. That's, that everyone puts on a screen at every conference I go to. Yeah, I think, he, I think he would agree with you there, but, but yeah. Yeah, uh, I, I, I find it reductive. Hmm. Um, what I think it has produced is um, uh, there's a goal and there's an object and there's a, tent, there's a contradiction and people call it research to go find the points of a triangle in something. Right, well, and my question is always, what else did you see? Uh, or, or how did you know, you know, you look at these things because the triangle says they're there, but does that mean that that's all that's there? And from a cultural historical standpoint, how did those things get there? That's always a big question. Why is this place the way it is? How did this, how did this little society or community develop over time to become the, the unit that it currently is? Um, I, my own adaptation of what I, I study things that Vygotsky never studied. So I can't just say, let me replicate his experiments. And, you know, he was really a clinical researcher for the most part. He, 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 um, contrived situations and put people in them. And my own study, you know, you, you can't do that with classrooms. You have to take what happens in the classroom. Uh, you can try to design a controlled study, uh, hmm. but I—that's I, uh, not what I do. And so I'm interested—I've I, I, adapted certain um, features 
And I go back to Jim Wirch's interpretation of Vygotsky as um, having a, a genetic or developmental perspective that's central. It has to be developmental. And that's, some people just don't seem to, they, they skip that part. Um, and it concerns the role of tool-mediated, goal-oriented, uh, I would say socially channeled action toward a cultural end. Hmm. Okay, that's, that's, that's kind of Vygotsky in a nutshell as interpreted by Jim Wirch, and I think uh, Jim's a very smart, thoughtful guy who's actually been to Russia a million times and knows all these Russian psychologists and has read it in Russian. And I, yeah. He's also, the, he's, he's also the author of my favorite book. So, yeah. Which, Mind and Society? Um, no, the other one. Vygotsky and the Social Formation. Formation. Mind. That's a terrific. Those are, those are kind of my, uh, yep. Those yeah. are. Uh, books, just an extraordinary writer. Yeah. Yep. Fantastic and, and sentences. Thinker. Yeah. And he's yeah, a yeah. guy too, by the way. And anyhow. Um, so from that, I extracted a few things to look for when I'm trying to study a, a, a phenomenon. What is what is what are the goals? What is the purpose of all this? And I think in in triangle language that's called an object. Um, but I, I don't I don't really want to go in. I, I don't want to make that as a blanket statement because I mm. someone would probably say, "Oh, you're missing the point." Okay. But yeah, my, and I, I, I know I know virtually nothing that. about that. Yeah. yeah, you're headed towards something. And I think Jim Wirch asked a really important question that I keep repeating without having a good citation for. I heard him say it. I don't, I don't know if he's written it. That if you're saying I'm studying development and aren't saying development toward what, mm. you're, that's, that's fundamental. It's, you're not just developing as a blob. You're headed somewhere. And that somewhere is always a cultural destination. It's you're 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 heading somewhere that has been pre-established as a place to go. And so, it, from a uh, when I study, say, teachers, and they're they're evolving, developing conceptions of what it means to be a good teacher. They're trying to get to the good teacher destination. Um, but that shifts a lot because what happens is in the, it, they're in the midst of tremendously contradictory environments that suggest 10 different developmental endpoints at all times. Mm. Um, so it, it's, it's a tremendously, uh, I, the book that I've got coming out, it should be out this year sometime. Uh, it's my sort of like the equivalent of the book that you've been holding up, the Vygotsky and Literacy Research. It's kind of my Vygotsky and Teacher Development book. Mm. Mm. It, draw, it puts together, synthesizes uh, 25 years of work in this area. And um, awesome. so the what I keep coming back to is how difficult it is to develop a coherent conception of anything in the midst of so much contradiction. Mm. And I earlier just referred to the idea that we're supposed to celebrate diversity and standardize everything. That's a fundamental contradiction that teachers are in the middle of. They're supposed to do both, right? But they can't. You can't do both of those well at the same time. But that's one of many, many, many 
contradictions that teachers are in the middle of, and they have to yeah. do with the surrounding ideologies. Um, yeah, or, 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 we're, or we're supposed to, or we're supposed to celebrate diversity, but but we're not. But no one who has a different take on it is allowed to speak. <laughs> well, right, There's right. Another. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's good old academia. <laughs> um, can't so, wait! Can't wait for that book. That sounds awesome. But uh, I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah. Um, well, there are, there are ways. Hmm. So that uh, that'll be out with Bloomsbury. Um, it's in production right now. So um, there are. So that's this. The one of the problems in being in studying teachers' concept development is that the, the endpoints are so many and varied. Mm. And they may be teaching toward this one here and this one here, and those might be five minutes apart. You know, they're, I'll, I'll, here, go write in your journals. Now mm. let's discuss the story, and by the way, better get to the right answer, right? You know, so these, these things are constantly happening in classrooms, and what I've seen people do is say, the problem is that teachers are contradictory. And I say the problem is that the environments are contradictory, mm. and the teachers are working amidst them. They're not they're not dumb. They're often very smart, but smart people can be conflicted. Mm. Uh, one of the things I use in this new uh, this forthcoming book is I put together Walt Whitman saying in saga myself he says something like i am made up of multitudes yeah i'd have to go back and look at exactly what it is yeah i'm vast he says am i contradictory of course i'm contradictory i'm made of multitudes mm. so i use that poetic piece and this is very consistent by the way with cultural historical activity theory that that you you're not limited to any field you can draw on philosophy poetry um, mm. uh, gardening magazines whatever so and then there's this finding from evolutionary psychology. I read a really, I, I find that to be a fascinating field. Which yeah. Very much, it's like this whole cultural historical development of a species. Mm. Um, and what they say is that it's computationally impossible to be a consistent human being given the number of alternatives there are. And so you put it, and, and these things describe teaching. Yeah, and, con and consistency is not even related to fitness necessarily. If, if I'm not mistaken, like like you don't have to be consistent to to survive and reproduce, like you don't even have to be logical or rational. Well, to totally. reproduce, you need something yeah. else entirely. Yeah, but, uh, <laughs> I mean, and math. Yeah, this was defined differently in that conversation. Yeah, yeah. But uh, so so there are there's this confusion over what the the whole purpose of what you're doing is, and that makes teaching a very a fascinating. Mm topic to study in a very frustrating line of work to be in. But the frustrations of the work make it a, make it a fascinating topic of study. And you know, the fact that I've also done it and been in the midst of all these contradictions helps me empathize with the teachers who are doing this because uh, when I did a study of a teacher teaching the five paragraph theme, the knee-jerk academia response is bad teacher. Ah. I, my response was, I wonder why she does this. Yeah, yours is way better. And then you look at, oh, okay, there's a state writing test that has a five paragraph theme rubric. That has a lot to do with why she's doing it. She was, that's all, that's how she was taught to write and she was good at it. 
that has a lot to do. Her own socialization has a lot to do with it. The fundamental structure through which her teaching is evaluated says to do it. Is there, is there like a is there like a is there like a thirty second version of the case against that structure? That you oh, it's that it's. Um, I would say people say that first of all, it's the only time you ever do it. No one Not writes true. five paragraph themes when not writing five paragraph themes. Mm. Uh, they there are versions of it that are so heavily specified that there's no room for a writer Got to it. think. Mm. Um, right down to what each sentence has to do. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. Um, who says that there are three reasons behind every idea? Sure. Um, so there, 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 those are the uh, critiques of it, and, and there, I'm sure there are many, many others, but it's generally yeah. reviewed as more stultifying than beneficial, than, than useful. Got it. Got it. It was just interesting here to hear you say the knee jerk, you know, the knee jerk reaction is X is bad, or, you know, yeah. and, and teacher is bad because of doing bad things. Mm, mm -hmm. And a bad teacher and dumb, and and that's what Janet Emig referred to teachers who teach the five paragraph theme as neurotic, mm. which I find extraordinary. I don't see how how she became a pop star, yeah, with being that wrong, yeah, and being that insulting. Mm -hmm. um, but it worked. She became famous based on on that critique. Anyhow, that's a whole other story. Sure. So the the other the other elements that I so if you you try to get a sense of the purpose of doing things that that's the the object toward which actions are directed. Mm. And to me, that fits ideally with Vygotsky's emphasis on human development. Um, the other another element is what is what tools are employed in order to bring about the uh, outcomes that you're hoping for. So setting tool, uh, oh, and what's the setting in which all this is enacted? Because the setting itself either suggests or dictates how things go. Uh, and I know teachers who teach scripted curricula. Mm. And um, that's that context frustrates them tremendously it sets the goal, it sets the things you say, and it, it limits the tools to get there to what's in the script, uh, as though all kids are the same. You know, this is a classic example of- Incredible, incredible. And I'm sure that the school mission statement also says we're gonna celebrate <laughs> diversity and honor all kids, uh, unique personalities and ways of doing things. But every teacher is gonna say the same thing down the hallway at the same time every day. So those are the those are the ways in those are the things I look for when I read when I observe that sort of research was based on both classroom observations and then interviews with the teachers following the observations. And so the the analytic method became why are you doing this? Mm. How are you doing it? Why are you doing it this way? Um, what, what's the end toward which you're doing it? So those would be the sorts of interview questions. And then that enabled me to make inferences about the conceptions of teaching that they were developing in this environment, in this setting or context, kind of synonymous terms for more or less the same thing. So, so potentially a teacher can just 
use those four questions or some variants of just as a form of reflection or as a form of group team uh, conversation, et cetera. Seems really productive. I mean, those questions are always sort of present, but you've made them a little more explicit. Right, and I've grounded them in, if you're gonna do Vygotsky, this is a way to mm. do. Okay. And I don't know if that fits with this other guy's big five. Yeah. Mm. But I, I also wouldn't say that these are the only ways to do it. Mm. Although I also was at a conference in Moscow a long time ago, early 90s, early mid 90s, where there were actually people who claimed to be doing Vygotskyan intelligence testing, which struck me as all to contradict in, in terms. What was, how was that defined as? Well, they, they had, you know, the IQ tests, mm. um, which are, first of all, IQ is a contested construct in, in sure. itself. It, it's not clear whether it's measuring intelligence or your familiarity with the sorts of questions being asked, yeah, or yeah. whether you like the questioner. And that's always left out of these things. If you don't like, if you have a bad reaction to the questioner, you're not going to mm. want to even be sitting there. So I, I, I question whether there is such a thing, but these people claim there was and presented on it. Yeah, I have, I have a Vygotsky take on that topic, but I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to save that for another time when right. I could get my thoughts together. Yeah. Well, what's next? Uh, I have two more questions for you. Okay. Okay. And the first one is, uh, well, first, happy Martin Luther King Day. And, uh, well, well, thank is, you. Yes. And is, it, is there any, are there any personal stories that you have about Martin Luther King? Or is there any way, you, is there anything you could say about him in a Vygotskyan? context. Well, he was a man of contradiction. Okay. That's for sure. Um, you know, there's, he was a, he was a great moral leader who plagiarized <laughs> and had a lot of extramarital affairs. I mean, that's a, he was human, no doubt about that. Um, and, you know, I was there for all that. I was born in 1952. I, I, I don't know if I saw the I Have a Dream speech live on TV, but uh. I was around at the time, my guy, that's too long ago for me to remember what I was doing in 1968 or I was 68 or 65. Anyhow. Um, so, but I was, I, my, uh, you were, you were a teenager. Wow. Yeah. Um, I was, I, and I can't remember the, was it, was, I think he died in 68, but the dream speech might've been 65. So I, I was a young, immature teenager who, mm -hmm was much more interested in whether I could uh, get my temples to go away than I was in human rights. Mm. You know, I, I can't claim to have been a really worldly or uh, uh, socially conscious kid. Uh, it's also probably worth saying that I grew up in a segregated society. I, was a, I grew up in Virginia. My schools were segregated. Um, and and I, I, had, I didn't really question it when I was 12 years old, right? I, this is the school, you go to it, and that's who's there. You know, I wasn't, as I said, I was a pretty oblivious kid. Um, at the same time, the civil rights movement was starting to boil around me, and because we lived close to Washington, D.C., we were in, we got the Washington Post and Washington Star every day. The Star, yeah. And 
that was really in the air, plus all the desegregation was in the air. And so the, there were very turbulent times. And I, you know, King was an important figure in all that. But what, I, what, what bothers me is that there were so many other people. Um, there's no Fred Hampton Day, for instance. There's no Andrew Young Day. There's no Harry Belafonte Day. He was a really courageous guy because he was in these marches and his mm. career was at stake. He could easily have just said, sorry, I'm going to go sing some more Calypso songs while y'all march. Uh, but he was out there. So there are, what bothers me about the, the, the way the civil rights movement is now remembered and celebrated is that it focuses on the guy, the nonviolent guy. Not Malcolm X, not Fred Hampton, not some of the badass guys, not Eldridge Cleaver or Stokely Carmichael. I mean, these people were very important in this movement, but they were, there was a hostility to them. There was a, mm -hmm. there was a threat of, you know, the Black Panthers were armed. They're not remembered in the same way even though I think that they had a very important role. And I wish the civil rights movement weren't reduced to the, to the nonviolent guy who's less threatening. Now, that doesn't mean that King wasn't a stoutly morally courageous man. He was. Um, but his, I think that, that he's become the icon because he didn't advocate for violence. And that's the way white people want to remember the civil rights movement. What does that last sentence mean? Well, they, when I went, I was, when, as a kid, I was scared. Mm. And, and scariness produces change, you know? Uh, I, I, I didn't know what was going to happen. I, I, I just knew that there were, that something was, that there were some violent people out there who didn't like the way things were and they might do something about it. And that was scary to me as a kid. I understand it. But if you, the, the civil rights movement is remembered with people like Rosa Parks did a nonviolent thing. Um, King's approach was nonviolent. And that's, I, 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 I wish that the, the more severe people got more credit for the role um, if they play. And by the way, the um, talk about contradictions, you know, King mm. is very indebted to Gandhi, right? I was surprised when I went to South Africa last year how much they hate Gandhi in mm. South Africa because he was a racist. If you read what he wrote about black people, black Africans, oh, it's rough. Mm. So this Mr. Peace Mr. Indian writes, he also discriminated against people. It's just, you know, the world is so contradictory. People, yeah, the world, people. And you and I are too. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not placing myself above this. Uh, mm. I, but I've been able to accept my contradictions through my immersion in the scholarship. Interesting, interesting. Is, is when Vygotsky talks about the, the, well, the topic is the process of development the main topic of his experiments and theory 
specifically the topic, uh, the process of development of higher mental functions. Is that an is that limited to individuals or is can a society? Well, that's is a, it is it too much of a stretch question. to? to uh, and can we say, since we're talking about the civil rights movement, yeah, can we, can we apply a Vygotskyan lens to development of a? Of course, yeah. I, I, anything that concerns human development is amenable to this sort of analysis. Okay. Um, is that as far as you know? Is that was that an idea of Vygotsky's that it was supposed to be uh, flexible? His theory was supposed to be flexible to the individual and to the group, perhaps? Well, here's where um, it, it, it always gets complicated, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. So uh, when I read Vygotsky, what I see is an emphasis on how an individual's trajectory is a function of engagement with social practices and, and the and the cultural history that has produced them and puts that person in a in a developmental stream with a specific sort of trajectory mm. okay, so we're as an individual i'm swept up in a social current and that's how that what that's what provides the basis for my developmental pathway so you can't separate them that without the cultural stream there's no stream to get swept up in um, that that makes me want that makes me want multiple cultural streams because God forbid well, one one stream is you know <laughs> God forbid one stream gets polluted. At this point, we're probably all in them. Mm. You know, whereas when Vygotsky did his research in Uzbekistan, these were people who'd never been out of their own valley, and so you could actually find in Europe or the or the Soviet Union. I'm not sure where how you classify these places. That, that were basically untouched. Mm. And so they could go into these remote valleys in the, in the mountains of Uzbekistan and find these little societies that if they wanted to get to the next thing, they'd have to walk over a mountain. And so they didn't. And so you could actually have these kind of un, uh, undisturbed singular cultures. It's hard to do that now. Mm. And in fact, he and Luria were very judgmental about those people. But I, I think their studies are fascinating. I don't know if you ever read the Luria book. I think 1976 is the date. No. But they would give these peasants these sorting tasks. And so here's a card. Here's a hammer, a saw, uh, a rake, and a log. Which one doesn't belong? This is a kind of a classic European Eurocentric sorting task. And they'd say, well, they all belong. You can't cut a log without a saw. Yeah. And you know, they they just they would see relationships that were different from the classification schemes that the researchers had in mind. And it was it was baffling to the researchers to, and they were almost trying to talk the peasants into seeing the proper yeah. relationships. And they and they, and they were just met with a different logic very cool if they would have just given the problem right given the problem and say let's just look at how this problem is answered yeah that's, that's just really interesting was conducted in the yeah mm -hmm. I mean, it's, you know it's easy to see what they could have done better a hundred sure. years ago yeah can uh can an artificial intelligence 
can some sort of machine learning develop higher mental functions? Well, that's that's one of the um, that's an enduring question, and I would say now no. In a hundred years, I don't know. Okay. Um, I guess you could say that Alexa has, which is a form of AI, mm. AI yeah. um, is probably built with certain cultural norms you know, embedded because mm. it wasn't developed by Uzbekistani peasants of the 30s. Um, it probably does things that people like you and me do. Um, and you can build probably cultural things into the machinery of a robot. Mm. Um, I I just don't I don't I'm not a tech guy. Mm. Uh, I don't really understand how things like that work. So I'm not I'm, it's not my best question. But as someone once I remember this question came up, and. Uh, and, and someone, a woman wrote something like, well, when these things have postpartum depression, we'll see what kinds of, uh, what they can actually simulate in a person or, or you know, if they can cry or some, it was, it, was, it was a strong emotional dimension that they said, you can't build into something that you can't fabricate. You can probably learn to simulate it. Okay. But I don't think it's, that doesn't mean, uh, I guess it's an open philosophical question. Does that mean it's there or not? Yeah, I, I just imagine this field of, of uh, Vygotsky and AI development, you know, like, like to even maybe applying or even testing out some of his principles in the coding of some sort of machine learning, which I also know nothing about. But I, I'm wondering to what extent machines that sort of learn or teach themselves or both. I'm wondering to what extent their learning process does and does not match the uh, a, a Vygotsky conception of development. Kind of interesting. Um, again, I, I, it's AI is probably more sophisticated than I understand. Mm. And it's probably more varied than I know about. You know, I know about Alexa and I know about robots. You know, that's yeah, you know twice as much as I do. Yeah. yeah right, right. <laughs> Which is not and I don't know much. I have an easier question. Okay. Well it's uh, something that I can answer without guessing. This is it. It's uh is there anything else you think we should discuss that would be uh helpful, particularly toward a target audience of people who are interested in Vygotsky but don't have like a don't want to read them? Yeah, there you go. That's what YouTube's <laughs> for. That's what YouTube is all about. Well, the only thing I could say is you got to read it yourself because if you're going secondhand all the time, that's when people find in their ed psych books that Vygotsky invented scaffolding. Mm. You know, uh, you, if you if you're always getting secondhand information, that's what you're getting, and it's important, I think, to engage with the ideas yourself. At the same time, if I were a high school English teacher right now with 150 students. And I thought it was important to teach writing and grade it. That's what I'd read. My students writing, not some old Soviet uh, psychologist. But, you know, I, I think the teachers are put in the position of having to take shortcuts because their jobs don't give them time. Is, is there one paper that you have written 
that you think, if somebody had time to read a 10 to 15, 20, 25 page paper even, what would you recommend for that type of audience? Well, I, would, I would start with one of those ones that I wrote for teachers in either language mm. arts or um, English journal. Um, and, and again, I know the language arts one uh, has gotten some circulation and referencing. And it's called something like, what does Vygotsky have to offer the 21st century language arts teacher? Okay. And that's because that's when I try specifically to say, here's what I think that is of is something that matters that's probably different from what uh, what you've heard. And there's something mm -hmm. I wrote for one of these multicultural uh, encyclopedias or something oh. like that. I was asked to write on Vygotsky and multiculturalism. But again, I, the, the point is to make it some of the things I've written are for academics, and some of the things I've written are for practitioners. And they're, I guess the guiding principles are similar, but the manner is different, and the exam yeah. might be different, and the accessibility issues are really matter in these, in these things. Yeah, well, I, I'm very, very, very grateful for your time, and even over the years, You've sent me the occasional long response to an email I've sent, and now this is the second time we've had uh, a face-to-face. It's a very -face. long email here. Yeah, and it's, uh, it's really, really appreciate it, and it was well, so much fun. I'll, I'll quote my daughter here when she was young, and we'd say, Alicia, we got to go. She said, oh, just be a minute. And like 10 minutes later, Alicia, <laughs> you said it was just going to be a minute. And she would say, I meant a very long minute. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> My so daughter's going to love that. Here. Yeah, I'm going to give Maddie that line. She's going to yeah. love that one. Uh, all right. Well, hey, it's always good to talk to you. And yeah, likewise. I'll follow up briefly with something else. But, uh, oh, I now I don't know what to do with my – I'm going to stop my –